This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome along to episode 49 of the Three Lions podcast. My name's Russell Osborne. Hope you've had yourself a good Easter break. Decent weather for it. Plenty of football played too. Now I hope you enjoyed the last episode with Gary Stevens. Seems quite a while ago now. I'd like to thank him for his time for that. I'm always trying to get an insight into players' experiences, so please do stay subscribed. You never know what will appear in the future. I enjoy doing podcasts like that because, well, they're timeless and can almost be listened to anywhere, anytime and still be relevant, which I hope this one will be too. As coming up shortly, we chat with Glenn Isherwood from England Football Online about the old Wembley Stadium and England playing there. Now let's just catch up on some things that have happened since we last spoke. The Lionesses began their Road to France series of warm-up games. They started with a 1-0 reverse to Canada, which was played at Manchester City's Academy Stadium. Followed that up, though, with a 2-1 victory over Spain at Swindon's County Ground. Goals from Ellen White and Beth Mead, and a first start between the sticks for Ellie Roebuck. Now, the Lionesses have two more warm-up games before facing Scotland in France in the World Cup. They play Denmark on the 25th of May and New Zealand on the 1st of June at Walsall and Brighton, respectively. Sticking with the girls, the under-19s, well, they made it to the Euro finals in Scotland, which will be played in July after winning all their qualifying games, a few by some convincing scorelines. Now, this team contains plenty of players that are going to be knocking on the senior side's door in a few years' time. Moving on to the senior men, with less than 50 days until we kick off against Holland in the Nations League, there is the Harry Kane issue. Tottenham confirmed that he suffered significant lateral ligament injury to his left ankle in their first Champions League game against Manchester City. Pochettino said that he's hopeful that he will return this season, but we're just going to have to wait and see how that pans out. We could be going to Portugal without Harry Kane or without a fit Harry Kane. Some sad news recently, though, saw the passing of two former England internationals, both coincidentally on the 12th of April. Ivor Broadis died at the age of 96 and at the time he was the oldest surviving England international. He won 14 caps, scored eight times. Ivor made his debut against Austria in 1951 and went on to play in the 1954 World Cup finals in Switzerland where he scored twice against Belgium. And Tommy Smith, who died on the 12th of April, Aged 74, Liverpool defender who appeared 467 times for the Reds, yet only won one cap for England in 1971 in a 0-0 draw against Wales. We send our condolences to both their families 
and friends. I'd like to welcome back to the Three Lions podcast, Glenn Isherwood from England Football Online. Glenn, hello. Hi, Russell. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good, thanks. Now, we last spoke, I think it was late January time, I think, we spoke about the, the website England Football Online. Yeah, that's right. It was a good chat. Gave us a uh, an insight into all the historical side of things that you've collected and collated and, and put out there in the ether. I assume that's still all going all going to plan? Oh, yeah, yeah. We've had a busy time with the uh, the last couple of games, Czech Republic and uh, Montenegro, and constantly tweaking web pages. I, I'm trying to build up more on the kits side from this century's games. I'm trying to get the under-21 games kits collated and see how far back I can go with those. So the under-21s kits differ from the senior kits, then? No, they're, they're the same kits, apart from... Uh, match details didn't don't often appear on them, but uh, it's it's knowing which games they wore the white, which games they wore the red, that kind of thing. I see. Well, we shall uh, we shall see when that all comes together. You'll have to keep us posted on that one. Yeah, I will. Now, what we did speak about in that previous episode was your knowledge on Wembley, the old Wembley, the Twin Towers, as many people will will know them as or remember them fondly as, and and you of course wrote. A couple of books, actually, but the one I was going to, although I've got in my hand, was the Wembley, the complete record from 1923 to, to 2000. Obviously, there was plenty of other things other than England games played at Wembley, but I thought, let's have a uh, have a chat about the old Wembley. Let's let's sort of reminisce about it for, for half an hour or so. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's a, it's a yeah. huge subject. Let's see what we can fit in. Let's see what we can remember. But first of all, the book, how did that all come about? That was a long, drawn-out labour of love, really. started in the early 80s when I was trying to find which players had made most appearances at Wembley. And I I could find details on cup finals and internationals. And I I like the idea of having my own list of players, which games they played in. In those, and that sort of dragged on for a few years. I tried one or two publishers with it, but then it got into the 90s. I'm, I'm going to do this properly now, so I started building my own match reports. I did a lot of background information. I visited Wembley. Uh, Wembley's press office told me that uh, I'd set myself an impossible task to collate everything that had happened there. And I wanted to get all the other things, the non-football stuff as well, to, for it to be a real complete record. Eventually, to cut a long story short, I, I got a book published on FA Cup finals. And then finally, in 2006, I got a complete record out there. And a lot of years contacting people with their own specialist records there was somebody in Gloucestershire who had made it his business to collect firsts and lasts there were so many obscure games and events going on and so I really needed some sort of inside information to be sure and the number of years passing also convinced me that I'd got pretty much as complete a record as it was possible to get but but for years I was just chasing up every mention of Wembley in books videos programs newspapers I had a researcher uh, going up to the newspaper library for me and I was on the phone and this was before emails and internet's 
internet really came in, it, it was a lot harder to get that information, and a lot more of it's available these days. But yeah, I, I was really pleased when I when I got that out there. It's certainly a, a book full of full of stats, full of knowledge, full of as you say match reports, and and it's not just on as I say football because there were plenty of other things that that happened there. Of course, the Olympics were played there or or held there. I guess I should say uh, boxing, dog racing, of course, was a, a famous thing. Rugby league concerts were were a big thing at Wembley, I guess, towards the end of its time. Do you, do you remember how many times that you, you went to Wembley? Like, as a as a punter, did you go regularly? Yeah, I went once or twice in the 80s. I saw my team Burnley a couple of times. But yeah, it was, it was quite a rare occurrence for me to get down there. I mean, my, my fascination had grown from watching cup finals uh, on the TV in the 70s, where it was such a... A unique place at that time. I mean, you look at Premier League stadiums nowadays, and they're all similar. But there, back in the day, I mean, Wembley just stood out. Everything else was a football ground. It wasn't a stadium. There, there was no ceremony about it. Like in the Premier League nowadays, the teams come out, they, they line up shaking hands. There was none of that. I mean, teams came out separately. They'd have a kickabout and the kickoff and the game would be away. But at Wembley, it was also... So big a ceremony, you know, the players had come out at one end of the stadium from the tunnel that walk across the pitch, like entry of the gladiators. Uh, That was a long walk, wasn't it? Yeah, it all built up the expectation. And then the players would line up facing each other, you know, not in a long line like they are today. And then the royal guest would come out and then you'd get the, the national anthem and... And at the end of the game as well, that that was different as well. The cup final had finished. There'd be a brief celebration, no no interviews or anything. But the players would be straight up the steps to receive the trophy within like a couple of minutes of uh, the final whistle, and then they'd be running around the pitch with the trophy as well. They always used to really highlight the amount of steps at the old Wembley that the players had to walk up, and I, and I can't remember. I'm going to take a guess. I want to say 57. I don't know if that's right. 39, I believe. Oh, 39. Oh, it, it was John Motson that researched that for his first cup final. Oh, was it? 77, yes. I've got images now of John Motson sort of going up the steps, counting them. One, yeah, two, three. But they doesn't. They always seem to have sort of really emphasised that. And the, the new Wembley, when they show the players walking up those steps, it, it doesn't have that same feel. Uh, because they almost have to go up and then they double back on themselves yeah. and, and go up. It just doesn't feel the same. Is it too early in the conversation to ask which you prefer, the old Wembley or the new Wembley? I love all the history about the old stadium and the events there. But, I mean, having been to the new stadium, well, it's not very new these days. I mean, it's what, 12 years old now. But, I mean, it is a fantastic stadium. You know, all, all the all the facilities there and it's... It, it's got a fairly unique aura as well. Yeah, having grown up with the old Wembley, I, I think I, I'd prefer that warts and all. I mean, I know in the nineties the facilities weren't that brilliant there for the for the fans, but it's yeah, it, it's progress. You've got to accept it. It's a great stadium now, so it couldn't have really have been done, but it would have been would have been great to have those twin towers still incorporated within the new Wembley. They obviously had the idea of having the arch. If they could have had the two, 
I think would have been a sort of a great nod to the past and a and a nod to the future. I think would have been good. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, but it, I I don't think it was technically possible because it was it was connected to the surrounding wall, and I think the arch would have just dwarfed the towers as well. But but yeah, I I think it would have been nice to have found somewhere for them. I tried to top up in my own head the amount of times I went to Wembley, and I think I went seven times. Um, I went to five England games, including that last one against Germany. And I've mentioned mentioned on the podcast before, my first one was the England-Scotland in Euro 96, which, which wasn't a bad one to start with. And I, the, my first time at Wembley was to see Arsenal against Sheffield Wednesday in the Coca-Cola Cup final in 93, when famously Steve Morrow was <laughs> <laughs> was upended by Tony Adams and and ended up in hospital and not receiving the trophy, which I, I felt quite sorry for him. But on the the flip side, I I also saw Oasis at Wembley, so I had the pleasure of sort of standing almost in the centre circle, or where I visualised the centre circle to be, and actually looking up around and and seeing like the large Wembley canopy all around so that was good to get that sort of perspective as well yes it was fabulous really i mean it was modeled on uh, the Colosseum in rome i don't know if you've ever been there but it is it's very similar to that and when it when it became an all covered when all the stands were covered it, and that continuous all the way around it's it's fantastic structure i don't think you can beat that really the uh, symmetry of it. it it just looks perfect to me yeah, I don't think you get that with the new stadium, but but yeah, you're right. It doesn't have that sort of symmetry, symmetry yet yeah, all around the the roof of it. Well, let's let's touch on England. We've done the stats. England playing at Wembley played 223 times. They won 132 times, drew 61, lost 30. They scored 473 times and only conceded 179 times. The first time that England played at Wembley, there was something about it that took my eye. It was against Scotland. We seem to have a lot of firsts against Scotland. 12th of April 1924, a one-all draw in a British Championship match. It was refereed by a Scotsman. Yeah, it's surprising nowadays, but believe it or not, quite a number of England-Scotland games were refereed by Scotsmen. The return fixture at Hamden was often refereed by an Englishman in the 1920s and I think it was because there were no Irish or Welsh referees considered to be strong enough to handle the England-Scotland game because it, it was the big game uh, of the season and, and quite quite a passionate affair. Now that changed a bit in the 30s, I think Irish and Welsh officials started to appear and maybe there was more trust in impartiality in those days uh, but there was certainly no no less passion then and probably more so in those days but uh, the referee perhaps got more respect I'm not sure yeah well you certainly couldn't imagine it happening these days could you no not at all (laughs) (laughs) it then took them four years until they returned to Wembley England that is why why would it take so long yeah well that was that was a really key period in the the history of the stadium if I can take you back a, a bit further to, you know that the, the stadium was built for the British Empire exhibition. Yes. Which turned the, the whole area into a theme park with a, with a stadium at the centre of it. There were a couple of lakes in front of uh, the Twin Towers at that time. And 
it became a bit of a white elephant when the exhibition ended. The FA had, had used the, the availability of the stadium to, to stage cup finals there. And there was obviously huge demand for that size of a stadium. Uh, Stamford Bridge had been used in the early post-war cup finals in the early 20s. And I think the season before 1923, there were only 53,000 at the cup final. So they wanted that bigger stadium. That was the only event that was that was booked at the stadium. Uh, and the, the company that was running the British Empire exhibition were were closing themselves down and needed to sell the stadium on. It was bought by an entrepreneur called Jimmy White, uh, who was a bit of a gambler as well. He did a deal with Arthur Elvin. I don't know if you've heard of Arthur Elvin, but without him, Wembley Stadium wouldn't exist. Oh, right. He did a deal with Jimmy White, who was about to buy the stadium, but Arthur Elvin had become an expert in metal salvaging. So he was going to take the buildings uh, and get the metal out of them and, and sell bits on. And he wanted to buy the stadium, but he had a plan for the stadium. He'd done a deal with Jimmy White to pay him £12,000 as a deposit and the rest over a 10-year period. At the same time, Jimmy White was actually buying the stadium from the company, uh, the exhibition company. But then, to complicate matters, Jimmy White committed suicide before his deals had gone through. So this left Arthur Elvin with two weeks to come up with uh, £122,000 to buy the stadium. He did a brilliant deal at this time. Uh, He set up a company, got the money, uh, and the company was called the Wembley Stadium and Greyhound Racecourse Limited, which was a bit of a clue as to what his intentions for the stadium was. So as well as the football, he wanted to make it a, a greyhound racing venue three nights a week to pay the bills. So then that would allow the, the cup finals to be played. England, Scotland, yes, I think 1926, I think it was played at Villa Park maybe. Uh, but 1928 was the famous Wembley Wizards game. So all, all around that time, he was bringing in new events he acquired the stadium in 1927, so I guess he didn't have a say in the 1926 England-Scotland game. So in 27, he brought in the Greyhound Racing. In 1928, Wembley actually had uh, an amateur club playing their home games there called Ealing Association. Now, that was another attempt to bring in regular crowds, but that sort of backfired because amateur football just wasn't going to take off. He got the Rugby League final in 1929, and Speedway also arrived in 1929, so that's when it started to take off. So from 1928 onwards, the Scotland game was included in that. There were lots more amateur games, and it just sort of grew and grew. So that was a rather long-winded answer to your question, I think. Oh, no, there you go. I'm, I'm fully educated. But, I wasn't aware of Jimmy White and, and yeah, the likes. The key thing is that if Arthur Elvin hadn't been so persistent in, in getting a deal uh, for the stadium... It would have gone to auction, and there were other people who were going to buy it. One, one person wanted to turn it into flats. So if he hadn't persevered and got hold of the stadium, I mean, we'd never have had the 1948 Olympics at Wembley. England wouldn't have won the World Cup at Wembley. Live Aid wouldn't have happened at Wembley. And we wouldn't have this £825 million stadium on that site that we've got now. So it's, it's one man's perseverance that, that gave us this stadium in that particular place take her hat off to him um although i'm sure there will be some or I'm sure there'll be many who's saying who think oh why couldn't it have gone up to the the midlands or or somewhere if, if it had have been knocked down uh, that may have been its its destiny 
Maybe, maybe, I don't know. But the FA, I mean, was still very much London-based, so it, it's still at Wembley. I, I know there was a, a campaign to get it to Birmingham when they were building the new national stadium, but Wembley still won in the end, maybe partly because of that name and that history and the tradition. Because it was it was known as the, the Empire Stadium at, at some point, wasn't it? It was, yes, up until around the 1970s, I think, when they sort of dropped the Empire name. And the Empire was pretty much long gone by then anyway. You've mentioned various events that, that took place there, the World Cup, the uh, the Olympics. Um, so many England games took place there, very famous ones that go down in history. Of course, the, the 66 tournament, the 66 final Poland in 1973 is a famous game. Euro 96 as well. Um, but I think probably the, maybe the first real famous England game, and, and not for, for England reasons, maybe the Hungary game in 1953. Oh, yeah, that was... Uh... Would that be a, a turning point in, not just in English football, but for, for Wembley as well, would it be? Yes, definitely huge interest in the Hungarians because I think they were unbeaten in um, something like five years up to that point but we I mean people in this country hadn't seen them so they they arrived at Wembley and Pushkas was there juggling with the ball before the game people just hadn't seen skills like that uh, and there's a they were ahead within a couple of minutes uh, you had Hidaguti playing this centre-forward role, deep-lying centre-forward that was revolutionary. England players didn't know who to mark. This one famous goal where Pushkas leaves Billy Wright, the England captain, on the seat of his pants. by was drag- that the, the drag back? Yeah. And England were just completely outplayed. They were lucky to get three goals, really, and they lost 6-3. Uh, yes, that, that was very significant. Maybe more significant that England then lost 7-1 to Hungary in Budapest the following year. Uh, so that that really brought it home that England being the inventors of the game, the laws of the game, and thinking that they were had a divine right to be the best in the world, had fallen a long way behind the best. And Hungary didn't even win the World Cup. They were beaten in the final the following year by West Germany. Uh, yeah. Of course, yeah, as I say, Poland was the, the nineteen seventy film with the, the clown was I think he was known in, in goal. <laughs> Wasn't he referred to? Was that by the newspapers? Uh, it was. It was Brian Clough who came up with the the term that circus clown in gloves. Uh, and Tomaszewski was an eccentric, had to be said. But I, I think that game against Poland. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget that. But he, I think he dislocated his finger in the first couple of minutes, and he was given a painkilling injection. And he was just completely hyper after that, leaping around, throwing himself at absolutely everything. And, and his defenders were throwing themselves in front of things. England had so many shots and they'd have probably have scored at least six goals on any other day. But somehow they didn't they didn't manage it and they needed the win. Poland got, got, got the point and got through. And Brian Clough was still insisting that Poland would get found out. But they... They ended up finishing third at the World Cup the following year, and Tomaszewski, I think, saved two penalties in the tournament. So he wasn't a bad keeper, really. No. And that, that game was was played in the evening, I think, wasn't it? England games tended to be played weekday evenings, weren't they? Yes, they did. Uh, usually Wednesday nights. Uh, I mean, 
before the advent of floodlights, obviously they were they were afternoon games. So Wednesday afternoons. It's interesting when TV sometimes showed them, but other times they had schools programs to show. You know, you, you only had a couple of TV channels, so it was limited to what you could see on the TV. Then in the late fifties, floodlight games started coming in. So, but it, they were always Wednesday nights at that time, and of course. There were no games postponed on the weekend before. They were just slotted in in the calendar. No international break as there are now. No, no that really didn't come in until about the 70s. 77, I think, was the first one. Right. And do you think that that was the maybe a part of the aura of Wembley, that it was often played under the lights? Or, or I guess the cup final was, was always played in a, on a sunny May Saturday yeah. and cut and England games were were played under the lights. Is that what drew people to Wembley? Yeah, and... yeah there was certainly a special atmosphere. I think uh, under the lights. I can remember lots of uh, England games that that were like that. There was a nice story. I spoke to one of the designers of the new stadium, and he said when they were building it, they made sure that the pitch was completely in sunlight in the month of May, between the hours of three and five. And then, of course, just after that, they switched the kickoff. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things that, that is, just feels wrong about about the cup final as, as having it at five o'clock. Traditionally, 3pm on a Saturday afternoon is the time to play football. Here's another game that we, we've not touched on there, will we should elaborate more on, I guess, was was 66, the World Cup year. It was held all over England, uh, various stadiums, but all of England's games were played at Wembley, weren't they? We played all our, all yeah. our group games there, quarterfinal, semifinal, and, of course, the final. That was a big deal, obviously, back then, wasn't it? Yeah, interestingly, um, in England's group, there were six games, and only five were played at Wembley. And the other one was switched to the White City Stadium, which I don't think is there anymore. And it was because uh, it clashed with a Greyhound racing night at Wembley. So that held precedence yeah. over the World, World Cup. Cup. Imagine that happening nowadays. Well, it wouldn't happen, would it? <laughs> no. It might be uproar if there was Greyhound racing at the new Wembley. Yes, yes, I think so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the the images of the, the 66 World Cup, that, that was a obviously in full full sunshine was that that was a three o'clock kickoff was it the the final mm. uh, yes yes it was yeah saturday the 30th of july i think it rained part of the day and it was sunny for part of the day as well i thought i, I found it quite interesting that england played in long sleeves throughout that tournament and it's the the latest a world cup tournament's been held in the summer right you know, Ran to the end of July, and if it had gone to a replay, that would have been the first of August, I think, which is which is really late in uh, in a World Cup. And it was the first time really that the country had, had seen so much of a World Cup. Uh, four years earlier in Chile, it they'd got satellite TV pictures, but we weren't we couldn't see the games until two or three days later. And in fact, England's first game in that tournament was against Hungary, and they'd already played the second game before they showed it on TV in this country. <laughs> did really? <laughs> so all of a sudden, in 1966, you were getting live games, uh, and they had slow motion as well. That was that was introduced for the first time, and that confused people. They they thought the game had been recorded, and it wasn't live. <laughs> oh right. What was the the deal with? 
black and white and color because i i was under the impression it was it was shown in black and white and then was it later released in color or was it always recorded in color or the the color films will be the newsreels that you've seen they were the only color films of it i think there's two or three different newsreels but all the tv coverage was in black and white we didn't get color television until i think the following year in this country in fact, the first England game to be shown in colour was in 1968, away to West Germany, I think. Well, moving on, there's a few more England games or England-Wembley games. One that, again, mentioning Scotland and, and a game that Scotland won. I don't know how many games Scotland beat England at Wembley, but there was one they like to make a meal of it when they do beat England. And on this occasion... They inv- the supporters invaded the pitch and famously jumped and broke the crossbar. Yes, that would be 1977. Uh, they both broke both crossbars, I think. There was um, quite a bit of an uproar around that. They'd won 10 years earlier, 1967, and proclaimed themselves as world champions. And of the course, fans yes. And the, the fans invaded the pitch then, and they, they were digging bits of turf up and taking it home as souvenirs. But 10 years later, they went a stage further and sat on the crossbar and broke those. And a bit sad, really. It got out of hand with, with a bit of violence over the next 10 years. And sadly, that fixture, which used to be annual, the longest-running fixture in the world, was, was brought to an end, really, because of the fans not really getting on with each other. Mm. I guess the, the groundsman that day can't have been too happy. Was, was Scotland fined for that? Do we know? I can't remember, to be honest. I know there, were, there was quite a lot of outrage at the time. England were going through a really bad spell there. They were, they were coming to the end of Don Reavy's reign as England manager. and They lost to Wales in the midweek and then lost to Scotland. And we were not going to qualify for the World Cup because we were in a group with Italy and we'd already lost to them and... And then Reevy resigned as well. So it was, it was quite a low period for England. And Scotland were on a high. They were heading for the World Cup in Argentina, which was a spectacular failure for them. <laughs> There's the podcast, Dig at Scotland. <laughs> you don't mean every, Scotland every, listeners, do you? <laughs> so, there might be one or two that uh, <laughs> drift by. Uh, move forward a little bit more to Wembley's probably best tournament in, in recent memory, Euro 96. Yeah, that, that was fantastic, really. Under Terry Venables, I remember two games in particular, well, for good reasons and one for not so good. The the Scotland game, obviously for David Seaman's penalty save and then Paul Gascoigne going up the other end and scoring one of the greatest goals I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and the timing of that was fantastic. And of course, the the dentist chair reenactment, squirting water in his mouth. Uh, yeah. And that, that was a fantastic moment. And you were there, you said. Yes, so I was standing behind David Seaman's goal, almost as there may have been like half a dozen rows behind me, but I was quite high up, and to my left were the Scottish fans, and and it, I, I was what would I have been sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, something like that. And I don't think I'd ever witnessed such an atmosphere from a section of supporters as the Scots were that day. They were amazing support, in, in all honesty. Yeah. And when when they got that penalty that Gary McAllister stepped up to take, they were on the, the edge of their seats and willing it to go in. And when David Seaman saved it, it was just a total contrast. 
of just David Seaman jumping around. I think Tony Adams went and kissed him and, and the Scots to my left were just sitting down and everyone else, England supporters all around jumping up and down. And then, as you say, 30 seconds later, the ball was being pumped out by David Seaman and, and it all happened in such a, almost a flash that it's, it's gone up the other end of the pitch. And as you say, Gaz has flicked it over. Was it Colin Hendry? I think who, who was, he was playing, playing with, at Rangers, I think at the same time, yeah, popped it past Andy Gorham, and as you say, the dentist chair was was going on, but I was I was so far away that all I could see was they were there was bodies on the floor, and people were going back to Gaza to do something to him. It wasn't until I got home that I could actually see what had happened, because you, what I remember of the old Wembley was you were. If, if you're sat where I was, it was it was quite a distance from the pitch. Yeah, it was. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that's my that was my abiding memory of of that particular day. And you say you've got another one of Euro '96. Yeah, the the Holland game, England's performance that night was phenomenal. I mean, four goals up, and they they were all quality goals against Holland, who you expected to be one of the favourites, and it, it was like you were in heaven. They were, <laughs> were wonderful. I, I'm not sure they've really bettered that performance. Maybe against Germany in Munich, the 5-1. But uh, that one was just perfection, really. You thought things don't can't get any better than this. But then, of course, we got to the semi-final and Germany, penalty shootout, Gareth Southgate uh, missing that one and it, and it all came to a, to a sad end. Euro 96, I think, was the only time... Am I right in saying that England have been involved in a penalty shootout at Wembley twice? Yes, that's correct. Would have been yes. Spain and Germany. They never had a a penalty shootout. I guess they'd never had the need to really before then, had they? No, because it, it's because it's only major tournaments, uh, and of course they're usually hosted by one country. So mm. I think some countries have never had a penalty shootout. And I really thought England were going to win that semi-final. I thought the Germans were rattled. Gascoigne was so close to getting a touch on. Uh, it was the golden goal, so that would have oh, been yes. you know, so near. But maybe one day we're going to make up for it. Next year, when, when the new Wembley will host the Euro 2020, a chance of us redeeming, or maybe Gareth Southgate will redeem himself at, at Wembley. Yeah, um, he's already done plenty. Well, yes. And then it was the last game, which was, again, against Germany, Euro 2000. Was it Euro 2000 qualifier? No, it was a... It was World Cup 2002. It was a qualifier, wasn't it? Yes. That was one of the games that I was at. Okay. So Um, you'll remember that damp, drizzly day as well. Oh, yes. What a horrible atmosphere that was. I had a headache as well, and... It was it was such a disappointment, and then I I think the highlight of the day was finding out that Kevin Keegan had resigned because just thought we needed to to start again. There was just no uh, no drive about that England team. I think one thing I do remember as the players were walking off. I mean, it was a horrible drizzly day, rain pouring down, and suddenly fireworks were being set off from behind one of the stands. I think, and I thought. Yes. It wasn't even dark either. You know? <laughs> no, it's, it's exactly one of the memories that I have that, as you say, I was 
I was actually stood uh, opposite end of the pitch that day. I was to the, I think I was to the, to the left of the tunnel. So Keegan had already walked past me. The players had trudged off. And you're right, there were fireworks going off. And there was also a load of ticker tape that was blasted into the air or came down from the from the ceiling of the stadium and I know that because I've still got one of those little bits of gold ticker tape in my program (laughs) yeah there there were all sorts of appeals for people not to take souvenirs but I saw a guy take a a map of the stadium off the wall and then conceal it under his coat right and then he left the stadium singing Jerusalem at the top of his voice Uh, (laughs) but nobody uh, stopped him (laughs) he had a few I'm sure what happened to it all? Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of it probably went to landfill, but the seats and the various things, what what do we know? I think the goalposts are in, there in the new stadium. Yeah, I think they've been the, in sort of the lobby or in the bar area yeah. as you go in, yeah. So the ones that, well, probably not the actual goalposts that Jeff Hurst scored from in 1966, but uh, it's it's symbolic anyway. I don't know what happened to the seats or any other parts. Um, it seem, seems odd that they... I mean, I don't really remember them telling people not to, to take any souvenirs. Part of me obviously wishes I did now. But, yeah, I, I can imagine those those flip-down seats would have been quite easy probably just to, to hoik away, should I have been inclined to do so. But it was just a bizarre day all round. Mm. I had a chat with Gary Stevens, the Tottenham player, and I asked him his memories of, of Wembley and Gillian Coulthard. She played at Wembley as well. What was when the old Wembley like? Well, I loved it. You know, it's an iconic stadium. You know, you talk about Wembley in, in a football environment anywhere in the world. And, and people know that it's, you know, the home of English football in London. So, yeah, I, I loved it. Was it was it a a great stadium with that dog track round it and with some poor visibility with the, you know, some of the poles and posts in the way and what have you. Maybe not, but it had so much history attached to it. You know, so, so many great games from years prior. And of course, arguably the greatest one with England lifting the World Cup there in 66. So, um, you know, for me, it was as a young kid, you know, I wanted to play in a cup final. I wanted to score a goal in a cup final. I wanted to play for my country. I wanted to play for my country at Wembley. So, you know, again, that was another another little hope and ambition of mine that I could put a tick alongside when I got on for England at Wembley in a World Cup qualifier. Well, it's iconic. It's anybody's dream to play at Wembley, whether you be a, a young boy or a young girl now. I mean, you know, to, to see that and... You know, the iconic Wembley with the Twin Towers. And I used to watch, you know, the FA Cup final every year when it used to be on, started at nine o'clock. And you saw the TV cameras go into the hotels and be in the bedrooms and filming. And I used to watch that all day. And I just thought, oh, God, yeah, I'd want to play at Wembley one day. And I I had the chance to do it with England. And luckily enough, I, I was the first one to score a goal. I think it was a penalty, I think. But, yeah. It's great, you know, it's one of them feelings. And for now, for the women to do it, yeah, it's changed. The, obviously, the the Twin Towers, have, the Towers have gone, but, you know, to, for anybody's dream to play at Wembley, it's, it's fantastic. Maybe some one-off incidents. I mean, remember um, Higita of Colombia's scorpion kick? Ah, uh, yes. 
I remember that one was one of the ones I, I think I heard on the radio. I was listening to it on the radio and I had to wait until the following morning to see it on the news to, <laughs> to actually visualise or, or to picture what I'd been visualising that time. Yeah, Higita with the, the scorpion kick. And there was one, was it Jeff Thomas, I think, took a shot. And I can't remember when, but he famously took a shot and it went out for a throw-in, I think, yeah. at Wembley. <laughs> I think it was France, that, 1992. Okay. Yeah, he, he was ridiculed, I think, on Fantasy Football, if you remember that programme, mm-hmm. with Gill and Skinner. Of course, they've they've been present at, at Wembley quite a lot. The, the Three Lions uh, song, which came about for Euro 96, and I think it was maybe that Scotland game that we referred to earlier when the fans started singing Three Lions on a shirt, yeah. like an impromptu rendition. And it came the, it became the, the theme of, of that tournament, you know, and it, it wasn't forced upon the fans. They, they wanted to sing it. And I think they were singing it again after the Germany penalty shootout as well. But Dion Skinner did very well out of that song. As far as England are concerned, it's, there've been just so many qualifiers I guess there's been some drama in those. I mean, mentioned Poland in 73. Four years later, Italy knocked us out of the qualifiers. We had, we had some really tough draws. I mean, we, went, we didn't qualify for 74 and 78 World Cups, but we had Poland in 73, Italy in 77. And to put Italy in the same group as us and only one team through was a bit harsh on us. We lost in Rome, but then we beat them 2-0 at Wembley, and that was Kevin Keegan and Trevor Brooking both scoring. That was quite a big night, really. I think it restored a lot of faith in the England fans. And that was a period when Kevin Keegan was was starting to be the main man. Uh, a lot of England's play revolved around Keegan. He scored most of the goals as well. don't know if it happened at Wembley or it may have been the, the game in Rome. Was that the one where Fabio Capello scored? He, he scored the winner for Italy against England at Wembley, 73. That was Bobby Moore's last appearance. Ah. Cap. And I think he may have scored in, in another game for Italy against England in Turin the same year. Yeah, that was a curious coincidence for him to end up managing England. 98, we lost at home to Italy. Uh, that was our, our, our first World Cup defeat at Wembley. 1-0 to Italy and Zola of Chelsea got the goal. That's right. I remember it was one of the games that I went to um, and I seem to remember Ian Walker got a bit of a a rough end of the stick for that. Whether he was culpable for the, the goal, or I, I can't really remember, to be honest. But I, I seem to remember Zola scored and Walker got a bit of stick for it. Yeah, he was a bit of a rookie goalkeeper as well. He didn't have much experience. I think he was sort of pulled in at the last minute. And I think Glenn Hoddle was a bit miffed because he he chose a Matt Letissier for the game and Letissier's brother had uh, mentioned it to the media and sort of given... Italians are heads up in advance of England's plans. That was one of Letizia's few England appearances, and it, it's sad that he didn't really do it for England uh, when he had so much talent. But we put that right in Rome later on that year. Brilliant goalless draw. That's right. Yeah, didn't. No, well, that was Paul Ince's bloodied yeah. head, I think, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was. I spoke with Gary Lewin that's on a on a previous podcast where he told us about what happened there that the the Italians had locked the dressing room where all the uh, where all the medical supplies were. 
which is why it took so long for Paul Lintz to get strapped up. I think Italy blew it in that qualification campaign. They'd, they'd beaten us at Wembley, so that put it was a two-horse race, really, and that put them ahead. And then they just dropped one or two points while we carried on winning. And so it ended up that we only needed a point in the last game. And that was one of Hoddle's greatest moments, I think, in his short England career, to get that result. Well, I guess that, that was the end of the old Wembley's qualifying, really, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, that was it, really. Hopefully there'll be more happy memories in the new stadium. I'm hoping that someone's doing or thinking of a a record for the new Wembley if if you haven't started it yourself. Yeah, it would be it would be nice to see because it's 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 always been separate to the FA. I mean, Wembley has staged its own events, all all those music events in the past as well. And in the old stadium, they used to have Speedway during the summer, and they had to cut off the corners of the pitch to get the Speedway track around there. Um, okay, that can't have been really good for it. <laughs> the groundsman, I guess, would have uh, would chopped that corner off and kept it somewhere and put it back, would he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. But it always had the quality of the old stadium. And they, this was going back, back to Arthur Elvin. It, it was the small things that he did. I, there was a nice story that a lady had once written to him to say that she'd tripped over a step uh, in the stand and she'd saw quite quite a number of people falling over this step and so he went to look at the step with his maintenance manager and the maintenance manager said but it's it's just the same as every other step in the stadium and he said well this woman's fallen over it and she said that other people have fallen so i think we should do something to make it more obvious so he had every step in the stadium they had somebody paint a white line across it so it was easier to see all right i mean it, it probably took them a few weeks to do that but but it was just little things like that 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 reinforced the quality that you didn't yet at that time in, uh, in stadiums. Actually, thinking of the old Wembley and um, watching cup finals with my granddad, as I used to do, I always seem to remember that players always seem to get cramp more than they do on the new pitch. I don't know if it was just it was just highlighted more then or, or perhaps fitness levels is, is slightly different. But I always seem to remember the commentator, probably John Motson, saying so-and-so is, is down with cramp and he's another player helping him out. Was was the pitch bigger back then? Uh, I think it was quite a big pitch. I think cramp, isn't that partly down to dehydration? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly medicine has moved on quite a lot and players are much better supported physically these days. So I guess that is that is less likely. I remember the schoolboy internationals that they used to hold there and loads of players towards the end of those games used to go down with cramp. And they were only 80-minute games. And played on a full pitch, were they? Yeah, yeah, the under-15s. It was the, the full works, you know, it was like an England-Scotland schoolboy international live on TV as well. Uh, and oh, some, of the, some of the... Famous players made their first appearance, like Peter Shilton played for England schoolboys there in 1965. Johnny Haynes going further back in 1950. Um, There's a a long list of famous players uh, making the first appearance. Ryan Giggs played for England schoolboys in 1989. He He was called Ryan Wilson at that time. But yeah, that was his first taste of the big stage. I think he was captain and he, he scored in those games. 
Oh, okay. And Michael Owen, I think, was also a schoolboy, yes. wasn't yeah. he, at Wembley? He broke records. Uh, I think he scored more schoolboy goals than anybody else uh, in a year. Yeah, so he was obviously destined for great things at a young age. Uh, and, of course, he scored that goal against Argentina when he was only 18, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And in St Etienne, was, of course, wasn't it? Oh, they don't play schoolboy games at Wembley anymore, do they? No, they don't. It used to be run by the English Schools FA and they were taken over by the FA uh, in about 1998 and I think they stopped uh, well they replaced the under 15s with under 16 internationals I think it was it was maybe too heavily tied to the the schools rather than the FA and I think more and more kids were, were sort of joining clubs earlier right um, so um, I think it probably made sense for the FA to to take control of uh, players from an earlier age. Um, but yeah, I, I can't remember the last... I don't think the new stadium's hosted a schoolboy international. No, I don't remember hearing about one. I'm just going to flick through your book here to see, unless you can tell me when the last one was. It was probably just before the stadium closed. Was it about 98 or... Yeah, 98. They grew with Brazil. And I think that was noticeable, or notable, because the Brazilian goalkeeper was sent off for handball. Okay. And the first schoolboy to be sent off, or the only schoolboy to be sent off at the old stadium. Claim to fame, I think. I bet he dines out on that, if he doesn't know. The last player to be sent off at the the old stadium was Roy Keane. (laughs) Ah, right, in a cup final, I guess. Uh, Parity Shield. Chelsea. Chelsea. And of course, the the last England player to score for England was Tony Adams. Yes. Who also, through through reading your book, I also found out was the player with the most appearances, uh, be it for club and country, at Wembley. Yes, and he, he didn't actually know until my stats were revealed to him the day before that last Germany game uh, he, he was surprised to hear it because I think he, he just overtook Peter Shilton in that in that game where he scored against Ukraine in 2000 uh, it, it was because Arsenal had played uh, a number of pre-season tournaments in the late 80s the Makita tournament if you remember uh, that yes yeah yeah, yeah famously because Arsenal beat Spurs there yes <laughs> people always think that Gaza's goal and, and Spurs beating Arsenal 3-1 was the uh, the first time that they met at Wembley but no it was a few years earlier when Arsenal beat him 4-0 yes I remember that 1988 yes and there were those semi-finals as well and uh, Champions League games that Arsenal played mm. at the end of the 90s uh, so they all took Tony Adams total over Peter Shilton's Ah, well, I guess now, getting their own back, I guess Tottenham and, and Harry Kane, I guess, will probably be a England player who has played most times at Wembley, uh, as a guess. Yes, I think you're probably right. And Tottenham far ahead of everybody, every other team uh, since the new stadium mm. was built. And and I guess to, to sort of do it a full circle, pretty much every world player that anyone would want to to see or, or know of has probably played at the new Wembley I guess your Messi has played there Ronaldo has played there 
Griezmann, I think, has played there. I can't think of many world players who haven't played at the new stadium. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, I mean, that that's similar to why I, I wrote the book in the first place, to try and find out if there were any famous players that hadn't played there. And in the case of the old stadium, it was Pele, the most famous of all, who hadn't never played at Wembley. That's right, uh, yeah. That's an amazing stat, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, there were... There was probably... I mean, Brazil only played at Wembley once during his playing career in 63, and he was in a car crash a couple of days before in Hamburg, so he was unfit to play. Yeah, there are, there are so many more club games played now at the stadium and so many foreign stars playing in this country, so there's, there's much more opportunity for the, for the big players to, to play at Wembley. Had a ch- few Champions League finals there as well. And then next year, the European Championship, there's a, there's a good opportunity for all the top stars to play there. Well, Glenn, thank you very much for, for taking the time to join us on the Three Lions podcast. It's been, been great as always. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks to Glenn Isherwood from EnglandFootballOnline.com. That is a website well worth a look. And I also see that they've teamed up with Dom Smith from EnglandFootball.org, who is, as I'm sure you know, a regular on this podcast. As always, please subscribe at your podcast provider. Leave a kind review and all will be good in the world. You can find us on Twitter at 3 Lions Podcast. Search also on Facebook and also at 3LionsPodcast.com. Until the next time, cheers. <laughs>